The Seattle Seahawks hot streak came to an end on foreign soil as they lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Munich on Sunday. Still, Seattle finds themselves atop the NFC West at 6-4 as they head into their bye week. We're joined by senior reporter for Seahawks.com, John Boyle, to discuss that game, Seattle's playoff positioning, and what it all means moving forward. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and today we are celebrating the triumphant return of my insidious producer, Mike Barwin, after a one-week absence. Mike, how are we doing today? We're doing great, Jackson. It feels good to be back. I'd like to think that my my absence had a little something to do with augering on a uh, UW win over Oregon, so we're feeling good on the football front, partially at least. Uh, Yeah. Now we're going to get to some Seahawks talk here shortly, but uh, yeah, really good to be back, buddy. How are you? Um, I'm doing great, man. And, uh, I, I'm amazed that we were able to get that episode out last week without you on the board. <laughs> I mean, I was an absolute caveman <laughs> when it came to that, but so I appreciate you making sure everything uh, still sounded great when we had Corbin on last week. That was, that was awesome. But believe me, I'm, I'm taking full exhales now that you're back. You know, uh, it was disappointing on Sunday, but the Seahawks weren't going to go undefeated the rest of the season, even though month-long winning streaks can start to make you kind of feel that way. But it's funny because under no circumstance would, I think, any Seahawks fan have turned down an offer to be 6-4 and four in first place by the bye week uh, if you offered it to them before the season. But it's still hard to watch the team play the way they did for the first three quarters of the so or so uh, of that game on Sunday. Yeah, I think if you're looking at preseason expectations, they are in an incredibly ideal spot right now. You know, as we as we've continued to hammer on, like the vibes are awesome. The team has been playing well, as you discussed. They'd won four games consecutively by 10 plus points. It was just an awesome stretch and it's a bummer that it came to an end, especially the way that they played the first few quarters. But, you know, I like how the offense kind of redeemed itself at the end. Gino made some holy shit throws to put them right back in it. The defense yeah, made just enough hilarious plays to keep the game tight. I mean, it, it was, it should have been known right off the top that it was going to be some weird bullshit that was going to transpire between the Seahawks and Tom Brady. So yes. not really a surprise. Yeah. It's, it's disappointing to see how they kind of started that game. But I also think that a game in Munich is a little bit easier, like win or lose to just, just kind of set it aside as its own thing. You know, uh, that said, it still counts as part of the overall season record, of course. And you hear me say it all the time, but it's always important to zoom out after each game, kind of take stock where the team is at. You can't identify a trajectory by looking at a single data point, which is why we're blessed to be joined by one of the best in the entire business to help add some context, not only to the most recent game, but to the season as a whole. He is the senior digital reporter for Seahawks.com, John Boyle. John, thank you for making the time. Absolutely. Glad we could finally make this happen. It's we've, we've had a few swings and misses, but here we go. Yeah. John is our uh, great white whale. We've been trying to get him on this show for, for a while and, uh, and really, really happy to finally have you, man. Uh, we, we're huge fans of the work that you do. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate that as, as we talked about earlier, the, the first attempt, we almost had it lined up. 
and then the Russell Wilson trade came down. <laughs> and Just, uh, just a, dropped a bomb in the middle of our plans. A little, you know, behind the scenes for people who don't know this is, is the team website. There are certain rules we have to abide by uh, from a league standpoint. So, you know, in that case, that trade was reported a good solid week before the new league year when trades can actually happen. So as I messaged Jackson when that happens, like, if you have me on, we can't even acknowledge this trade, which would be really stupid for your podcast. So we, we pushed it down the road. We've been trying about once a month since then, and here we are. We make a lot of decisions anyways that are really stupid for our podcast. So that's the best way to do it. Well, I want to get to the game against the Bucks because as much as I was bummed to see Seattle's one and a half game lead shrink to half a game on Sunday, I'm not terribly discouraged by it. But before we do that, I've always been fascinated by the way Pete Carroll and his staff have approached travel games, uh, especially when it comes to programming sleep schedules for themselves and the players. And Seattle has had remarkable success on the East Coast over the last 12 years as a result. But I feel like this past week was the greatest test yet of how they approach that. What can you tell us about the way the team prepares for playing in different time zones and what was unique to the Munich prep? Yeah, so real quick on the East Coast, because you mentioned that, and you're right, they've been, I mean, those 10 a.m. games used to just be the death knell for this team. You'd look at the schedule and you'd count up, oh, God, they got four 10 a.m. games. I, I don't have the number in front of me, but their record in those games the last few years is outstanding. Um, for those, it's something Pete Carroll brought with him from college. He's not the only guy that does this, but basically if his rule is if they're going two time zones or more east, they're leaving on Friday. That way you get guys, you know, getting to bed on Friday night late, but then they hopefully get on a more normal schedule Saturday, so that Sunday doesn't feel so early. Going overseas, they mostly just um, went with, they, they put a lot of research and talked to different people about it for London four years ago of, you know, what's the ideal mix of adjusting our sleep while not, I remember talking to Sam Ramsden, who's the director of player performance, I believe his title is, um, which, you know, overseas athletic trainers, all that. You can only do so much. You don't want to be prepping so much for the, uh, the international game that you're affecting the game before. So like I've heard people say, well, start adjusting your sleep schedule ahead of time, all that. But it's like, well, you don't want to screw up the week before. So what they came up with for London was you leave Wednesday night, you get an extra day of practice in. They practice Tuesday, which is normally the day off. So they, they essentially got a head start on the practice week. They leave Wednesday night, encourage players to sleep on the plane. You get there Thursday, I want to say it's like one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody's tired. You take them right out to the practice field so they don't fall asleep and kind of keep them moving. You know, they they went they took the players all bowling that night to sort of just keep them awake. And then the hope so cool. is you then, by the time you get to Thursday night in Germany, everybody's exhausted, passes out, gets a good night's sleep, and you're sort of on normal schedule. Now, it's not the same for everybody. I know some guys said they slept pretty well. DK Metcalf was posting pictures on Instagram at two in the morning watching The Lion King because he couldn't sleep. So it's, you know, it's not the same for everybody, but the hope is by doing it that way, A, you get guys adjusted quickly, and B, you build enough of a cushion that, okay, even if Thursday night sucked for some of the guys, maybe by Friday night and Saturday night, they're getting good night's sleep. So it's kind of how they did it. Now, the one biggest difference, and no one's going to use this as an excuse, but the one big difference between Germany and London is that game in London was a night game there, 10 a.m. Pacific time. This was 6.30 Pacific time. So for the guys who did have a harder time with it, that they might have been a little groggy, but again, they, they don't want to make that an excuse. No, certainly. And you have to at least mention that there was three hours less of a time zone differential with Tampa Bay, even though I sometimes I forget just how round the world is. Yeah. And 
and their flight was actually, I think, that like kind only of 15 or 20 minutes shorter than Seattle's. Like you know, I, yeah. it's funny. I, you're right. Like, you forget. I, I understand the concept of, you know, we can go north over the, you know, we go over Canada and Greenland and all that. But I still thought it was a pretty big difference. But, yeah, I think flight time-wise, is literally like half an hour difference. But you're right. There's a three-hour body clock difference out of nine total hours. It's, I mean, they're That's they're the difference third, between a, a night game lesson. and an afternoon game. Yeah, so... I mean, for sure, again, Pete Carroll's big on not making excuses and they're not going to want to do that. But there's no denying that it's a little easier on them from that standpoint of they're not adjusting nearly as much as the Seahawks were. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit with how it affected the game. Um, You know, I think the thing that stood out to me the most is maybe the thing that was most affected by travel, which was first half performance. Uh, the Seahawks have had terrific success this season in that regard. And when I say terrific success, I mean, they've had a halftime lead in eight of their nine games coming into this one, which is ridiculous, honestly, <laughs> especially with what we've been used to with this team for the last five years or so. But against Tampa, it just took them a long time to get going. They found themselves down 14-3 at halftime. Uh, if you had to break it down, to what do you most credit the Bucks' success and the Seahawks' struggles in the first half? Was it how well Tampa played? Was it mistakes or missed opportunities by Seattle, lingering effects of the travel or, or something else entirely? Yeah, you know, I, I want to give Tampa some credit there. I mean, first of all, I Absolutely. know their record wasn't great coming in, but that's a team that everyone expected to be an NFC, you know, elite team. Tom Brady was great in that game other than when they tried to throw him the ball, which probably wasn't smart. But, <laughs> I mean, you look at some – they killed the Seahawks on third downs for a lot of reasons. A lot of it is that they were running the ball and there's a lot of third and short. But some of these third down throws were really well covered – but Tom Brady's just putting it in the perfect spot. Um, and I think, you know, Pete Carroll's talked about this a bunch, but they, you know, this was just them getting a coaching win that the Seahawks didn't think they were going to try to run it much because they've been such a bad running team. They left Brian Monet inactive. They they much they very much geared up for a pass-happy game. And then the Bucks just go out and run, run, run like crazy, and it worked for them. So I think, yeah. you know, I give them a lot of credit for the way that game started. But, yeah, I mean – it's really impossible to quantify like if fatigue was a factor, how much it was, but you're right in that that was not the same first half versus Seahawks we've seen almost all year, especially on offense where it's just, you know, they were hardly getting any first downs. They're behind the sticks a bunch. And, you know, Michael Dixon was awesome, but you don't really want Michael Dixon to be awesome because <laughs> he's punting five times in the half. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But man, how about that 68 yarder out of bounds? Oh my gosh. And the way it just kind of kissed the sideline oh, before it went into the end. From where I was sitting in the press box, I thought it was a touchback and I was like, oh damn. And I'm like, oh wait, nope. Cut this <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's something where, I mean, there's, there's a lot about professional sports that is just sorcery to me, but some of these punters, man, that is just black magic to get the ball to behave the way it's like watching a PGA golfer, oh, you know, from, from 210 yards out and they're spinning the ball back towards the pin. I'm just like, that, that just doesn't compute for me the way that some of these guys in Dixon is, I mean, all NFL punters are remarkable in this regard, but Dixon stands out even among them, his ability to control the ball 60 plus yards downfield. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I've, I've been behind him at practice where you get that angle you wouldn't necessarily see on TV or the game. And I mean, it, it looks, you mentioned golf. It looks like a golf shot sometimes when he's trying different things where it's like, it has like significant bend on it and it's, it, I don't know how he does it, but this is probably enough punt talk for one podcast. <laughs> I, don't let me tell you how to do your job, but 
you I don't know, think this honestly, is what people uh, tune in for. There's a radical Puntalytics movement out there, believe me. It was uh, it was kind of the highlight of the first half, at least as, it, uh, yeah, as, as the offense goes. I mean, here's the thing. The Seahawks did have some opportunities in this one early, and they scored the two touchdowns late, so it's not like they were completely neutered. But it's tough to overcome just 57 first-half yards. Does Sunday's performance impact expectations of this offense moving forward? Uh, not at all to me. I mean, I think, you know, you first of all, other than maybe the 49ers, I'm not sure you see a defense that good again. That's yep. a really talented defensive front. Um, I, you know, again, this sounds like excuses, but I think the field really neutralized the running game a little bit. There's uh, Kenneth Walker, I think, had some runs that were there if he keeps his footings. So is know. that a cleats thing? Because Rashad White and Lenny Fournette nah, weren't having I, trouble I, with their maybe it could be cleats. It might be running style too. He's a little more of a guy who relies on cutting. Th- those guys are yeah. running a little more downhill than he was. That's true. But yeah, I mean, I, he might have needed different cleats, and I he might have been one of the guys that Pete Carroll said a bunch of guys changed cleats at halftime. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, look, we I think what we saw in the second half is what they expect the passing game to look like, where they're on rhythm and just Smith spreading the ball around. I really like the way they opened that one drive with two quick ones to Will Disley that were both first downs. Um, you know, if they can't run the ball, then I worry about the offense. But I, I think that was more a combination of weird factors and a really good defense that slowed down the running game. But yeah, I, I think the expectations should still be really high, high for this offense. You know, you mentioned third downs for the defense. And in my article on Sunday, I pointed to the massive discrepancy in third down conversion rate is maybe the most yeah. telling stat of the game. Oh, absolutely. That's the game. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. I mean, now I tend to view third down success in any one particular game as something of a noisy stat, which is to say there's a lot of randomness that's introduced into any third down sample size that small. That said, the Seahawks were just one for nine. When you look at this team as a whole, though, again, talking about zooming out, they've been quite good on third downs this season. And even after Sunday, they're still ninth in the NFL in terms of success rate. Did you see anything on Sunday that concerns you about the third down struggles? Are you more inclined to just chop that up to natural variance? Yeah, more of the latter. I mean, if you're in, they were in third and long more in that game. I don't know the numbers, but it felt like a lot more third and long than they've been having most of the year. And that's, to me, where you're going to be bad on third down. I mean, to be good on third down, you have to execute that particular play well, but you also need to not consistently be facing third and long. It, a big reason why the Bucks were so good on third down, they had a ton of third and shorts because they're running the ball, they're hitting some short passes. So, you know, third and two, you're going to you're gonna win that a lot more than not. But CX had some penalties in the first half. They had a couple negative plays where, you know, when you're facing third and long against a decent defense, it's, you're not going to win very often. You know, I'm – I'm really fascinated by something that you mentioned earlier. And it was something I was thinking a lot about after the game. We've seen Seattle run the ball really, really well this season. And like, I mean, this is probably a universal truth, but your offense is just going to be better when you run the ball really well. Um, I've, I've kind of swung back full circle to being a proponent of really leaning into the running game when it comes to how you build your roster and how you build your offense. And certainly it's a huge part of how Shane Waldron wants to do things. Uh, this was the first time we've seen Ken Walker struggle as a pro. Um, you know, he only had the 17 yards rushing on 10 carries. Uh, as you mentioned, slipping around a lot, seemed to have trouble making the types of cuts that he relies on uh, for a lot of his bigger gains. Uh, The thing that I did like to see, though, is that he contributed quite a bit in the passing game. Uh, He had six catches for 55 yards. I think that helps kind of answer what was the biggest question about his profile coming out of college because they just never threw him the ball at Michigan State. So that part was 
was, you know, really encouraging to me. But, you know, you mentioned the 49ers. They're going to play the Rams uh, two more times. And then in the playoffs, if, if this team keeps it going and makes it to the playoffs, good chance you're going to face good run defenses in the postseason as well. Seeing this offense for the first time without getting those big chunk gains on the ground, how do you feel they did in terms of adjusting to that? And if they run into this again and can't run the ball, is this a team that can still go out, score three, four touchdowns? Yeah, because, I mean, if Geno Smith doesn't fumble, they probably score three touchdowns in the second half alone. So, I mean, if anything, maybe the question is, do you make that adjustment sooner? Where They pretty much gave up on the run in the second half. If you go look at the numbers, it was, you know, they basically threw like crazy because they were down and they weren't running the ball well. So, you know, maybe if they run into this again, they change it up offensively in the second quarter instead of waiting for the third. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I do think Geno Smith is playing well enough. He's spreads the ball well enough or spreads it around well enough to different guys that even if you're one dimensional in terms of run pass balance, it's not so easy as, okay, we're taking away DK Metcalf. We're taking away this guy. So um, the one thing I do wonder about the running game too, is had the score been a little different and had they stuck with it, would it have looked a little different on the final statue? Cause you go back a couple weeks ago, it's Arizona Walker didn't do much in the first half of that game either, but they just were able to stick with it because they had the lead. And then he starts going off in the fourth quarter. So Different scenarios, you know, that's a lot of times how running games work. You get a lot of your yardage late if you're trying to run out of lead. So um, obviously this offense will always be better when it's balanced. That's what Pete Carroll wants to be. But what we saw in that second half is that Geno Smith can go out and throw it really well, even when the other team knows they're going to throw it. I mean, if he, unfortunately, he lost that fumble. And as he said, that's a play he can't have, can't happen. If he doesn't do that, that's a totally different game. That was coming off the really stupid halfback pass interception if yep. they go score a touchdown yep. there, it's 14-10, and all of a sudden it feels like momentum's very much in your favor. That that was to me the most deflating play of the season so far. And yeah. and 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 that's a self-contained thing. There's nothing about that to me that says this is an issue that needs to be corrected. I mean, Smith has been remarkable at protecting the football. And what's been so cool, because I I I mean, let's just talk about Gino right yeah. now. Because a lot of times when you have quarterbacks that protect the ball really well, you end up with a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo type stat lines, right? Where you have 200 or fewer passing yards, you have maybe one passing touchdown, but with Gino, he's still averaging over two touchdown passes a game, which is great. Um, he's throwing for 270, 280 yards with consistency uh, and has shown that he can push quick scoring drives, which you don't off usually you kind of have to trade one thing for the other. If you want the ability to score quickly through the air, you're going to risk some turnovers. You know, it's kind of the Matthew Stafford story, but with Gino, we've kind of got the best of both worlds. Yeah. And I mean, that's why what he's doing, it's, I mean, he, it, it's hard for people to accept because of what his career's been so far, but by every measure, he is playing at like a really high elite top five quarterback type level where to your point, he's not being the game manager who, which I think is what everyone kind of thought they wanted to do this year is Pete Carroll's going to just tell him to be safe. And that's maybe why they went with him over Drew Locke. I think that was a lot of the narrative, but he's making throws downfield and his, his yards per attempt average is up there, you know, among the league leaders. He's, you know, they have a ton of touchdown passes that are, you know, he's not throwing as many of the huge bombs, but in the 20 plus variety, he's got a lot of those touchdowns. He's just kind of handling every part of the game. Well, so 
uh, you know, I know it surprised a lot of people other than Geno Smith, but it, it very much feels real. This doesn't feel like some fluky guy on a hot streak. I mean, it's, he's got more double-digit touchdown games than any quarterback in the NFL and more games with 100 passer rating than any quarterback in the NFL. So it's not, okay, he got hot for four games and that's inflating his numbers. He's been doing it pretty much every week. No, I mean, we really are getting that beautiful combination of efficiency and volume. And, and like I said, that's, that's rare. And when you talk about the quarterbacks – who can marry those two things together? The names on that list exactly. Are, You're talking are about big really, names really like, impressive. Talking names. about like before this year, Aaron Rodgers or Mahomes and like Brady. And it, I know that sounds crazy, but that's legitimately the company he's keeping right now. Like, there's no number to to deny that. It is well, you know, uh, the baby elephant in the room has grown quickly with this team and yep. you know i the expectation i think certainly for a lot of us uh although I've, i'm sure there are some different feelings inside the building i do want to get your take on that as well uh but for a lot of us we saw whoever was going to be the starting quarterback this year is just a placeholder a, a mm-hmm. bridge quarterback to whoever the next guy is but now we're legitimately talking about one of the best quarterbacks in the nfl for 2022 uh the drumbeat surrounding uh, potential Geno Smith extension is getting louder. What have you heard in that regard? Yeah, I mean, the most mostly we've just heard what Pete Carroll said about. It. You know, there, I haven't heard any. Like, I, I wish I could give you some inside scoop, but quite frankly, they don't keep me in the loop on those decisions. And even if they did, I wouldn't tell you. But <laughs> I mean, Pete Carroll was <laughs> sorry, nature of the job. Pete Carroll was asked about that after the game in London because there was that report on Sunday that came out about you know them wanting to keep him around and. I mean, it almost seems like a no-brainer at this point, and Pete Carroll's going to say that, that yes, they want him back. I mean, again, all the things we're talking about, the level he's playing at now, it, it sounds like from what Pete Carroll said, that's not at the forefront of their priority right now. Not not that they don't see him as a priority, but just that's generally not how they operate in season. This team's got a pretty steady history of doing contract extensions certain times a year. They focus on re-signing guys certain times a year. There's been a few instances. The ones I can think of was like 2014. They had some cap space free up by trading Percy Harvin, and they extended KJ and Cliff Averill in season. But other than those two, that's not something they do often. So I'm not saying it can't happen, but it sounds like the more sure. likely thing is as soon as the season ends, that becomes priority number one of looking into that. I mean, obviously the franchise, what a world, man. The franchise tag is out there, and uh, you, that's an option you have. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild to your point that, you know, I think everyone – and I'll be honest, probably myself included, assume the long-term quarterback for this team was somebody they're going to draft in 2023. And now I, it seems foolish not to try to Geno, bring Geno Smith back and, and keep him around for a while. Even And, you know, you could still draft a guy. You've got the draft capital. You've got, you know, two firsts, two seconds. You could still go out and get a quarterback you really like but feel zero pressure to, to force that issue and or to rush a guy into action because you've got Geno Smith playing like a pro bowler. Yeah, you know, I would say the only lingering concern I have, and and I'm fully, <laughs> Mike could probably chop up a, a montage over the last month and a half of my feelings on a Geno Smith extension, and it's just been one step closer to yeah, let's go ahead and do this each week. And now now I'm I'm fully on board. You know, the way that I like to think about it is, if I woke up tomorrow and found out that Seattle had signed Geno Smith to a three or four year extension, how would I feel? And I'll be honest, for most of this season, I would still have trepidation if I had heard that. Now, if I woke up tomorrow and 
I see the latest from John Boyle that the Seahawks have inked Geno Smith to an extension. I'm I won't be pretty excited that, about me. it. That, that will not come from in-house first. It never does. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like I'm, I'm on board with it. And, you know, I, I think the last two games have made me more inclined to do it, even though they haven't been his two best games by any stretch. He started off really slow and both of them kind of look like he's been pressing, but they finished both that last game against the Cardinals and this one against the Bucks really, really strong in terms of quarterback play. And I think it speaks to what's been the outstanding characteristic for me, at least during Gino's remarkable season. And that's his resiliency as someone who's spent a lot of time with these guys. What's the impression you get from his teammates regarding his performance this season? I mean, we talk about his teammates. This goes back really to training camp and even last year when Russ got hurt, but especially when it became clear that Gino was probably the leader to win this job there there's been a ton of belief in him um you know he's been a guy if you were out here watching practice while he's been the backup he's he's always had talent and i think players see that and they just have always appreciated i mean i wouldn't say leadership because it's hard for backup to lead but just sort of his approach to the game his mentality and now he's in this role they've had a ton of faith in him and to your point these past few games we've seen two games and two moments that could have been the okay is this where the wheels fall off and you know the doubters get proven wrong where he throws a pick six that gave arizona the lead or where the offense is struggling and then he fumbles away a chance to go get a score to put him back in the game and in both cases he responded with just some phenomenal drives and great throws and great plays i mean both the touchdown throws he had yesterday were on sunday were just outstanding um so yeah, I mean, he's shown just about everything you could want out of a quarterback, you know, on the field, the way he responds to things, the throws he's making. And then I think he's just really commanded that locker room as well. Yeah. You know, I, I have to wonder, I, I certainly do not consider myself a cynic by any stretch, but you know, I, I do like to temper kind of my opinion, especially early in the season. I, you can't help but wonder, you know, when Gino gets named the starter going into the year and all the guys are saying, yeah, we believe in him. You know, he's our guy. You're wondering, okay, is this, is this the lip service from this team? But you know, they were some pretty forceful quotes from mm-hmm. his teammates back then. They, they weren't just the typical kind of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not going to rock the boat with this quote type of stuff. It was like, he's our guy and he's done nothing but validate that over the last two months. It's, it's been really incredible to see. Absolutely. I mean, you had guys like DK, he'd go out of his way when it, the conversation wasn't about Geno Smith to, to bring him up, to, you know, put that confidence out there. So, you know, someone would ask about Drew Locke, and I think a lot of people just assumed it was Drew Locke's job to lose. And it's kind of like, well, no, you know, this this Geno Smith guy, he's, he's in there too. So, yeah. It's, yeah. And look, I'm not going to predict I saw this out of Geno Smith. I don't think sure. a lot of people, if anyone did. But if you were around the team and around the building and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have some conversations with Pete Carroll outside of the press conference setting. It, it was a very real belief in him. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, I, I would say my only lingering concern with locking him up long-term is something I've mentioned on this show before. We've seen seasons like this before from career backups. We've, we've seen Case Keenum come in and have an amazing season. We've seen Blake Bortles do it. We've seen Ryan Fitzpatrick do it. Uh, there, there have been Nick Foles won a Super Bowl and then, that was kind of it from him. Uh, so, so there, there is a precedent for, you know, inking someone like Gino to a long-term contract and, and having not pan out the way that maybe you think, but 
I, I think this team around him is constructed differently because they're so young and they have such a war chest going into next off season that, you know, it's, it's just the way I see it. It's one less hole. It's the biggest yeah. hole facing this team. And now, you know, there, yes, there's an opportunity cost to signing Geno Smith, but there's also a huge opportunity cost to not because now you can use two first round picks and two second round picks and a hundred million dollars in cap space to not address quarterback, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd have to go back and look at those guys you mentioned. I, outside of that run Foles had for like half a season, I don't know if any of those guys were quite as consistently good as what Gino's been this sure. year. I mean, I think maybe Fitzpatrick's always been kind of a more boom and bust guy where yep. he's going to get a five touchdown game and then throw four interceptions two weeks later. But I, the consistency Gino Smith has done this to me has just made it feel a little more real than some of those other guys. Um, again, I think that run Foles had, it wasn't a full season, but he, his numbers were pretty off the charts efficiency-wise that one year. But, yeah, it's it, – it, to me, though, the biggest thing you point out is, like, the opportunity does present you if you're not assuming that you need to use one of those first-round picks on a quarterback all of a sudden, and you can go out and just draft the best two guy. You know, maybe get a couple defensive studs or some, you know, just – I don't know who – who do you – I don't know the draft well enough yet to know who those players are, but it it would be something else. Yeah, totally. You know, one last thing with the offense before we switch sides, we certainly are seeing a different style of offense, uh, a a less siloed passing offense than we've seen uh, in the past. And I think the player that it's affected the most is DK Metcalf, who you just mentioned. Uh, you know, I, I am seeing this remarkable evolution from Metcalf as a route runner to where he is winning inside of 10 and 15 yards with consistency. He's creating separation early in his route. Uh, the trade-off is we're just not seeing a lot of downfield shots to to Metcalf. And over the last five weeks, I think he's averaging like 10 or 11 yards per reception. Uh, is that just a function of the way defenses are playing them? Is it more a function of this is how Shane Waldron wants to use him? Basically, should we be expecting more downfield shots to DK Metcalf uh, the rest of the way? couple of things. I, I, I think it probably starts with the way not just teams are defending the Seahawks, but like we've seen a lot more of this around the league as more and more teams are like, you know what, we're going to play too high and we're not going to get beat deep. And especially when you have two really great deep ball route runners and pass catchers in Lockett Metcalf, teams are going to try to stop that first. So that's part of it. Look, also, I know different fans have different opinions right now. The last quarterback that was here. But whatever you think about Russell Wilson, he is arguably one of the great all-time deep ball throwers. So he's the best I've ever standard seen. of like what the deep ball game should look like for a team. Like I love Geno Smith and he's done a million things well this year, but I don't think you can ask him to throw the deep ball Russell Wilson did because there's maybe been a handful of guys in the NFL ever who throw a deep ball like Russell Wilson did. So I think a lot of it is just Geno Smith really functioning in the offense the way Shane Waldron wants him to. And if teams want to take away the deep stuff, then fine, we'll be cheering. Then there's also an element of, I think it's good to try to find ways to get the ball in DK Metcalf's hand, even if you can't get him open deep because teams are going to just put a safety over him every time. Of let's, I mean, we saw it a couple times this game. Throw him a ball five yards short of the sticks and let's see if that quarterback can tackle him. He was Love that. angry of just like, yes, yeah, okay, was, I'm just going to catch it and you try to tackle me. and. There's, I forget which one. There's one down the right sideline where he ended up getting tripped up. But for a second, it looked like he was going to bowl the guy over and just keep going. And I, someday yeah. he'll do that, and it's going to be just a great highlight. Because man, well, totally. I mean, you know, it was it was a play when 
Carlton Davis was just giving him a bunch of cushion. And I don't know if it was a check at the line to that or or maybe it was the, the first read regardless. But yeah, Smith just wung it out to him like two yards downfield. <laughs> and Carlton Davis just got enough of him because, I mean, he was flat on his back. I mean, you're you're basically in that situation. It's like you're throwing it to Derrick Henry with a head start, you know, and, and it was cool to see them take advantage of that. As a side note, though, as fire as DK Metcalf plays, I don't love having him on one taunting call at an earlier mm-hmm. point in the game because I was, mm-hmm. you know, when he's getting all fired up, I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> I know. He got that I one. Know. <laughs> I didn't see exactly what happened. It sure seemed like the official could have let that one go. But he got he got the taunting call asking for the PI and then uh, – or the unsports like or whatever it was. And then, and then when he's yeah. getting chirping at DBs, I'm like, uh-oh. But, he, you know, yeah. he kept it in check. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you're going to try and harness nuclear energy, you got to understand that there's some risk with it too, <laughs> exactly. you know? And, and look, he's, and that's, for as much as people, like I've heard fans complain about him, you know, his demeanor, his temper, he gets a lot more flags on guys, on defensive guys than the other way around. He's, he's it's, good at it's getting It's the cost of doing business. Skin. Yeah. Honestly, to me, it's like it's like Michael Bennett's offsides calls. You know, like it's just it's it's the cost of, of having a guy like that. Michael Bennett wins with anticipation, mm-hmm. and you're just you're gonna get eight offsides calls against him over the course of a season. But you'll trade it because when he does guess right, he's he's a game changer. And I feel that way about DK. I want to switch over to the defense. You know, I think that's been the biggest story of Seattle's turnaround, uh, you know, during the four game win streak, winning five out of six is how well the defense has played and not in the way that we've been accustomed to over the last few years, which is maybe not giving up a lot of points, but a lot of long drives, hoping to hold them to a field goal or, or get a third down stop somewhere along the way. But, you know, they've been an attacking unit over the last month. They've led the NFL in sacks uh, over a five-game stretch. They've been forcing a lot of turnovers, and they did get two turnovers in this game, but they never laid a hand on Tom Brady. Uh, To me, you know, and something that I wrote about on Sunday was Tom Brady is the greatest ever for a lot of reasons, but I don't think there's anything that he's better at than being on target really, really quick. So I understand he's one of the toughest guys to sack out there, but they, they just never really got close in this one. Yeah, you know, that's another one where, going back with the conversation about the field, Pete Carroll talked about this on his radio show on Tuesday of, you know, all the you think you think of receivers and DBs the slipping and falling and trying to cut, and that's a big part of it. But he said it's one of the things a slippery field's hardest on is a pass rusher where you're trying to, you're, a, you know, a big guy trying to turn the corner and get the edge on a guy and you don't trust your footing. So we saw, I mean, Bruce Irvin was very vocal about it on Twitter, complaining about it. So it does affect a pass rush, I think quite a bit, but I think the bigger issue than the field is just your point about Tom Brady is he is so good at knowing when the pass rush is coming, getting the ball out before it does. And the other thing, again, they were running the ball pretty decent and there weren't a lot of, you didn't have a ton of third and long, which is a great time to get after a quarterback, or you didn't have the late game playing from ahead, which is when they've gotten a lot of sacks lately of, okay, now we know you have to throw every down and we can just send our, our best pass rushers at you. They weren't in those situations. So a little discouraging that it went that way, but I, I think, you know, I'll take the, I'll lean more on the four weeks of progress we saw than, you know, a few issues in one game against the best quarterback that's ever done it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, how cool is it that, this team can lose a game and there's a number of kind of disheartening things you can point to, 
but it feels like they're isolated to this game and they're still in first, first place. place in the yep. division. They're still the number three seed. Uh, if the playoffs were to start today, just like they were going into the game, the thing that has changed is that now they only have a half game lead over a team that absolutely rolled them early in the season. What would you say when you look at the San Francisco 49ers and how they match up with Seattle, are the 49ers the team that the Seahawks can go out, run their type of game against and, and win, or are we, are we looking at a slim lead over a superior roster? I mean, it's look, they're a really good team and their defense obviously gave the Seahawks fits last time around, but just the improvement we've seen out of the Seahawks since that game, maybe I'm just hopelessly optimistic, but it's easy for me to look at that game and see how much better the Seahawks are and think, I don't think they're going to go blow the 49ers out when they play them later this year, but I do think that you're going to make it a lot harder on that offense. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo had some success in that game that I don't think will come as easily. And that was the worst game we've seen on this offense all year where I, I do think we'll see more out of them, especially when you're playing that game at home. So again, I don't think you can go out and look at, I think there are certain places the Seahawks are clearly better than the 49ers and vice versa, but I don't think I look at their roster and just be like, oh man, you got no shot unless they play a crappy game. I, I really think you can go pretty toe-to-toe to them, especially at home and with what we've seen out of this defensive improvement going, you know, since week two. Well, and for the first time in a long time, the NFC feels wide open. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I, I personally think the 49ers are as good as any team in the NFC and they're what, five and four. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, the the Eagles just lost to the Commanders. Uh, the the Vikings answered a lot of questions on Sunday too, but they're still not a team that strikes fear in my heart the way that like a Kansas City or Buffalo when they're really rolling do. Uh, it does feel like the Seahawks clean up a couple of things and continue to do the things well that they've been doing well all season. I mean. <laughs> I, you feel like I, they can I, play I'm just hesitant anybody. to like, put a cap I, on what they can do. Yeah, I mean, to your point, like there's no team where it's like, oh, if you run into them in the playoffs, you you got no shot. I mean, you. I feel good about the way this team could match up with just about anybody. And you know, it, it's you know, some years you might go into by six and four, saying we took some time to get going. We feel good about where we're at, but you might be two games behind somebody in the division, and now you're chasing them and you don't control your own fate this team felt like they took some time to get going but they're still in the lead and you still you know you control your fate it, look the one seed is probably going to be tough now because there's a couple teams out there with one loss but in terms of taking care of the division that's very much in your hands right now and you know a few issues notwithstanding is tampa bay this seahawks seems feels great about how they've played for over a month now yeah i i think that's just what it comes down to you know i I was so vocal this season about what my expectations were and and they weren't unique to me. It was, I wanted to see progress. I wanted to see how many items off the grocery list they could check off over the course of this season, knowing that, you know, it was supermarket sweep this upcoming off season between the draft picks and, and the cap space. (laughs) I can't, I can't do that anymore. Like now, like I, I am fully invested in them winning this division and making a playoff run and setting themselves up, not just to be back as a contender, but to like really threaten for this conference and to get back to a Super Bowl a year or two 
uh, quicker than I think was realistic two months ago. So uh, I, I think for me, that's that's the most exciting thing. But also, <laughs> it was so nice having a few games where <laughs> you just didn't care. You're like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Where it's like, yeah, if they if they lose, it's not that big of a deal. And then and then they lost, and I was like, oh man, half game lead. <laughs> you start yeah. to get now these you're living and dying with again. it all over again. Yeah, exactly. They just, they won't let me relax, man, but it's, it's fun. I mean, ultimately that's what I want as a fan someone who writes and talks about this team, you know, it's just, it's more fun when they're in the mix. Absolutely. And I mean, again, they are right in the middle of the mix. I don't, and I don't see it changing. I mean, you look at like, they got five of their last seven at home. Yes. That 49ers game is going to be hard as hell. Yes. The Rams, even when they look dead right now, scare the crap out of me because we've the history is not great there but um i i really like this team's chances to, to keep playing really well and and be playing past week 18 which i don't think very many people saw as a realistic thing coming into the year yeah ab- absolutely man well listen i i know this has been a crazy week of travel for you and a lot of prep that goes into it and getting back on the schedule so please know how much we appreciate your time today uh before we let you get back to it why don't you remind the folks who are listening where they can get more of your stuff? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Seahawks.com is where all our written stuff will show up. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at John P. Boyle. Some jerk took John Boyle before me. I, I can say that because I actually sort of know the guy. So <laughs> I, yeah, we occasionally get tweets intended for the wrong person. So Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean... Guys, if, if you're not already following John, make sure you are, as you can tell. Uh, is Twitter still going to be around in a couple weeks? I don't know. Well, that's that's the thing, right? <laughs> for as long, What's for your as Mastodon long as... handle? I, I need to get on that, I guess. Is that, what, is that what we're all doing if Twitter goes away? I don't know. I guess, man, we're going to have to pivot. Uh, but for as long as that hell site is still up and running, make sure you're following John. Uh, as you can tell from this conversation, he is the man when it comes to this stuff. And uh, again, man, really, really appreciate having you on. Glad we could finally do it. It was fun. Yeah, it was, man. We're, we're happy too. And as always, you can find us on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling Jackson. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL. And on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. To all of you listening, thank you so much for your continued support of the show. It means the world to Mike and I that the effort that goes into putting this on and getting amazing guests like John is being so well received by you guys. So thank you for sharing the show, for the feedback. We appreciate it so much. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. (laughs) 